0: Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this episode, Landon Morrison traces the historical connection between speaking orchestras and listening machines, showing how their co development has important implications for both music and
1: politics. In this hour, we'll be exploring the delegation of speaking and listening to musical machines. This is a big area of study that cuts across disciplinary boundaries, and later in the program I'll be hearing from three special guests whose work runs through the crossroads of computer science, communication, and culture studies. But to begin, I want to take a step back and tell the story of how an orchestra found its voice. voice has long been a model for instrumental tone in Western art music. We read, for instance, in Diderot and d'Alembert's mid-18th century French encyclopedia, that instruments are, quote, machines invented for expressing sounds in the absence of voices or for imitating the human voice. Likewise, in organology and orchestration treatises of the time, instruments were judged by their ability to produce a singing tone. even with the development of electronic instruments early in the 20th century, vocal timbre would continue to be a model, with futuristic devices like the theremin promoted for their ability to represent the voice with quote, amazing verisimilitude. And with the invention of electronic synthesizers, the line between voices and instruments would be further blurred. New technologies like the voter, unveiled by Bell Labs at the nineteen thirty nine World's Fair, were held not only for their ability to synthesize speech, but to sing as well.
2: And that, as you noticed, is really a singing tone. Yes, voter can not only talk, but he can sing. Test your voice for us, Voter. <laughs>
1: The voter would go on to inspire the so-called vocoder effect in the 70s, as commercial synthesizers spread across a wide range of popular music genres. For many, the robotic stylings of Kraftwerk will immediately come to mind. But the vocoder effect can be heard in all kinds of music from this period, here it is in Herbie Hancock's disco funk classic. I thought it was you. And here in Laurie Anderson's experimental hit, Oh Superman.
3: Oh, Superman.
2: oh John.
1: Even here, in Neil Young's synth-pop ballad *Transformer Man*. Transformer. 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 Meanwhile, in the classical world, speech synthesis played a major role in mid-century composition at places like the Electronic Music Studio of West German Radio where Carl Heinz, Stockhausen, and others merged phonetics research with avant-garde aesthetics. Decades later, a similar cross-disciplinary method would inform work on digital voice synthesis at the Institut de Recherche et Coordination Acoustique Musique, or IRCAM in Paris, France. These new technologies resonated with the emergent style of spectral music and would be eagerly embraced by young composers working at IRCAM, like Kaya Saariaho heard here in a 1982 study on voice synthesis, vers Leblanc. Composers and researchers at ERCOM and elsewhere increasingly found ways to extend speech synthesis to purely instrumental settings. At first with spectrograms, then with more advanced software, they devised techniques for transcribing sound into scores that could then be reconstructed in live performance. This technique is often referred to as instrumental synthesis, though it also goes by other names depending on the stylistic context. For instance... Clarence Barlow describes a method he dubs "synthementation" at work in his 1989 piece *Orchidée Ordinaire*, where strings are used to resynthesize the phrases "Why me? No money. My way." Similar lines, Peter Oblinger appeals to the idea of phonographic realism and pieces like his 2006 A Letter from Schoenberg," where spoken text is reproduced using a computer controlled player piano. And in his 2008 work, Speakings for Orchestra with Live Electronics, the late British composer Jonathan Harvey pinpoints a process he calls shape vocoding as being critical to the, quote, artistic aim of making an orchestra speak through computer music processes. In these last examples, vocal timbre gets cross-mapped onto the symbolic grid of notation, making possible performances that blur the line between instruments and voices. It says though they're made of the same stuff, bringing full circle Diderot and d'Alembert's dream of instruments that act as speaking machines. In this episode of SMT Pod, we'll be examining the convergence of voices and instruments in contemporary sonic practices. Heard against the longer history of speaking machines, this convergence offers a fascinating point of entry into discourse on what it means to not only have a voice, but to listen in the age of new media. As demonstrated by the preceding examples the voice-instrument connection has slowly shifted from a sonic metaphor to the register of synthesis via electronic signals and digital data. But at every step, this shift has been underwritten by corresponding developments in the science of sound perception. To wit, the voter emerged from hearing tests at Bell Labs aimed at making telephone communication more efficient and digital synthesizers first appeared as a means for testing knowledge of sound according to a Synthesis-by-Rule's methodology. More recently, this psychoacoustic knowledge has been consolidated in a working definition of sound that can be encoded as metadata in digital file formats and operationalized using music information retrieval methods, or MIR methods. The results of this shift from signals to semantics have been profound, leading to the establishment of an invisible infrastructure that today supports all kinds of sound-based software applications. Harvey's work Speakings offers an illuminating case study on how this infrastructure came to be, so in what follows, I begin by examining some of the compositional tools and techniques that enabled this orchestration of speech-like timbres. A particular focus will be on the assisted orchestration program, Orchiday, built for Harvey by a team of developers at IRCOM. In effect, this program automated instrumental synthesis, making it possible to cross-reference a target sound against a massive database of instrumental samples to find the best match. But establishing a basis of comparison required that sounds first be analyzed into an array of timbral descriptors based on a standard classification system. Thus, we can say that before it was possible to make an orchestra speak, it was necessary to make machines listen. To unpack just what this means, I reconstruct Harvey's creative process as he transitions from older software to the newly developed Orchiday, in the process drawing on a range of archival materials from IRCOM and the Paul Zucker Foundation. From there, I pivot to a closer examination of how timbre is defined in the program, recapping the history of psychoacoustic experimentation that feeds into this definition. And to learn more about the addition of machine learning tools and recent updates to Orchiday, I catch up with Carmine Emanuela Cella, a composer and professor at UC Berkeley who currently heads the software's development team.
2: So my work is uh, at the intersection of, you know, as you mentioned, music composition, uh, mathematical modeling, and and what we could say today, creative computing or machine creativity. So using machine learning for making music in a way. And I I don't know if there is a life cycle in that, but I would say the question comes from music. Then the answer comes from mathematics, and then the implementation comes from machine learning, in a way. And then by they actually interact, and then they are in a sort of feedback loop, and so they affect each other.
1: Extending our discussion, the final part of the episode goes beyond purely musical applications to consider the political phenomenology of listening machines and other contexts. Here, I sit down with two sound studies scholars who have co-authored a forthcoming article on the topic for the ethnic studies journal, KaFu.
0: One way to understand what machine listening does uh, is that it takes sound moving in the world, turns it into data, and renders it in a form like a spectrogram. Uh, And that, you know, that's a situation where the fact that it's a voice is sort of secondary to the idea that it's sound or
1: data. So that's Jonathan Stern, professor of culture and technology at McGill University in Montreal. And he'll be joined by Mehek Sani, a PhD student at McGill and the 2021 recipient of a prestigious Vanier Scholarship.
3: My sense of machine listening is that I think first it's important to note that machine listening includes multiple technologies across subfields. So it's music information retrieval, natural language processing, voice identification, voice analysis for your health or emotional status, and also something called computational auditory scene analysis, which is actually an analysis of ambient sound. Uh, So this is to say that machine listening actually firstly entails multiple technologies.
1: To help orient the listener within this cross-disciplinary soundscape, I've loosely organized the episode around three basic questions posed by Geoffrey Bowker and Susan Leistar in their book, Sorting Things Out. First, what work do classifications and standards do? Second, who does that work? And third, what happens to the cases that do not fit? Applied to timbre, these questions throw light on the political aspects of machine listening, revealing a collision of subjectivities and standards as the science of auditory perception is cast in technological form. In answering them, I hope to show how the encapsulation of psychoacoustic models into timbre formatting standards acted as an essential prerequisite to the development of software like Orchidee, and further, to show how the historical connection of voices and instruments has filtered into the wider milieu of machine listening in the 21st century. With this in mind, I'd like to return now to Harvey's speakings. This piece may have been Harvey's most ambitious exploration of the human voice as a model for composition, but it was preceded by a long line of voice-centric works, going all the way back to his first commission at IRCOM, Mortuos Plango, Vivos Voco, composed in 1980 for computer-generated sounds on quadraphonic tape. In that piece, Harvey blended synthesis and sampling techniques to produce chimeric combinations of two primary sources— a tenor bell at the Winchester Cathedral in England, and the voice of his son, a singer in the cathedral choir. At various points, these sources meld into a composite texture that oscillates between what Harvey describes as, quote, a bell of boys and a boy of bells. By comparison, Speakings was created in the context of a vastly changed media ecology, and in many ways, it pushes the limits of spectral modeling techniques that are still being developed today. The work exemplifies Harvey's stated goal of making an orchestra speak through its presentation of an audible program, first heard in the opening movement when oboe and strings articulate what the score describes as, quote, a baby screaming, cooing, and babbling. The narrative continues in the second movement, where one hears combined instrumental and electronic simulations of adult chatter. And finally, the progression of speech genres culminates when the full orchestra unites around the quotation of a Buddhist mantra. these examples, only the last was orchestrated using the new Orchiday program. The others were modeled using a mix of earlier software, including a commercial application called Melodyne to transcribe fundamental pitches, and custom software to analyze higher overtones in the spectrum. A good example of this hybrid setup occurs midway through the second movement, where an adult voice is channeled by a trombone solo with tremolo strings accompaniment. As you'll hear, a call and response between the orchestra and its playback in the live electronics helps to simulate the interaction of a dialogue. the orchestra remains indecipherable, but is nevertheless animated by a speech-like impulse, a kind of subterranean logic that drives the flow of the passage. I imagine the effect is further amplified in performance, where the audience can clearly see instruments making sound on stage, but also sense an invisible source beyond the orchestra. Drawing on the idea of acousmatic, or unseen, sounds as those with a separation of source, cause, and effect we can understand speakings as provoking a kind of virtual acousmaticity. Basically, two sets of sources, causes, and effects exist simultaneously. One for the live instruments, another for the underlying model. The models Harvey used in this piece vary widely. Some, such as a recitation of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, imbue the music with heady overtones, while others are decidedly less serious. The excerpt we just heard is based on audio from an interview with Matt Groening, creator of The Simpsons TV show. Heard here.
0: We always lie. We always said whenever people asked us about a movie, we always said, yeah, it's coming out next Friday. Yeah, big <laughs> joke. And finally, it is coming out next Friday. Well, a few Fridays from now. And it's taken a so-
1: Harvey's transcription of Groening's voice captures a general sense of vocal morphology. But continuous frequency and rhythm are quantized into 12-tone equal temperament, and a two-four metric grid, respectively. Missing completely are details for orchestration, which had to be figured out intuitively. With this in mind, I want to replay back-to-back clips so you can really focus on the resemblance of Groening's voice to the orchestra. So here's Groening.
0: We always lie. We always said whenever people asked us about a movie, we always said, yeah, it's coming out next Friday. Yeah, big (laughs) joke. And finally...
1: And now the orchestra. To my ears, the approach taken here yields some striking similarities between voice and orchestra. But the connections reside at the level of frequency analysis, leaving untouched the kinds of timbral descriptors that would be incorporated in Orchide. To draw out this contrast, let's consider another example. For this one, Harvey used Orchide to generate automatic transcriptions of his own voice chanting a Tibetan Buddhist mantra heard here. I want to pause to acknowledge the power dynamics surrounding Harvey's use of a sacred Sanskrit text as raw musical material. Judging from archival notes, the mantra resonated with Harvey's own identification as a Buddhist going back to the 70s, and in the extra-musical narrative of speakings, he viewed it as an expression of, quote, original pure speech. But there is a considerable cultural distance separating his musical appropriation of the mantra from its traditional placement in religious settings. The mantra's treatment thus raises questions around the ethics of aestheticizing Tibetan religious practices in Western art music, and it exemplifies how, in the context of new media representations, voices often get stripped of their social significance and reduced to a collection of measurable data points. In the case of Orchidae, this reduction of voice-to-data enabled a comparison of speech phonemes with the acoustic properties of orchestral instruments. Too complicated to perform manually, the program facilitated this calculation by cross-referencing Harvey's voice with the timbral descriptors of pre-analyzed audio samples contained in a large database. Whichever samples matched best were then combined into an orchestration with detailed markings for dynamics, articulations, and playing techniques. The trade-off for this level of granularity, however, was that Orchidée could only process steady-state sounds, meaning each solution represented a static slice of the spectrum. Harvey worked around these limitations by applying a series of constraints— varying the list of instruments, techniques, and the range of partials to be included in the search results. He then organized sounds to create the impression of an overarching timbral transformation, repeating the same phoneme sequence and tweaking each iteration to make the timbre grow louder, brighter, and closer to his voice. I'll play a short excerpt from this passage so you can hear how the original recording serves as a model. It can be debated whether this music succeeds at a recognizable recitation of the mantra, but it's still noteworthy as an early instance of MIR-based instrumental synthesis, and it offers a clear demonstration of how broader shifts around big data have filtered into the creative domain. dig deeper into what it means to translate voices into signals, signs, and scores. In particular, how does this reduction process mediate between human and machine listening? And what can we learn by looking to history? Early versions of Orchidae measured timbre along three axes including the spectral centroid, the spectral spread, and main resolved partials. In layman's terms, the centroid refers to a sound center of gravity in frequency space. It's often described using light-dark metaphors with brighter sounds having more energy concentrated in higher frequencies the spectral spread has to do with the way frequencies are distributed around the centroid, with wider bandwidths producing richer, more complex timbres. And the main resolved partials measure the most prominent harmonic components within a spectrum. Beyond these metrics, Orkidei also routed sounds through a series of algorithms to detect spectral peaks, model the transfer function of the ear, and account for perceptual loudness. In this way the software didn't just analyze audio signals. It modeled the perception of those signals, acting like a second pair of ears for Harvey. Since the creation of Speakings over a decade ago, Orchidea has undergone many changes. It's been rebranded as Orchidea, and its development has moved from a small collaborative team at IRCOM to the International ACTOR Project, which stands for the Analysis, Creation, and Teaching of Orchestration. This project brings together an international mix of private, educational, and governmental resources to advance new methods for the study of timbre and orchestration. And within ACTOR, Carmine Emanuela Cella leads the Orchidea Working Group, which has introduced a number of technical updates to the program in recent years.
2: Orchidea is the the latest version of this family of softwares. And the the, the approach is quite... uh... I mean, in a sense, it's similar. You use it in a similar way, but uh, conceptually, it's different. And the, the
1: difference... I recently caught up with Carmenet, eager to learn more about Orchidea, especially its recent incorporation of machine learning algorithms to model orchestration principles and dynamic rather than just static sounds.
2: How we. Uh, handle time. So in other words, uh, this is, uh, for dynamic orchestration, you need to keep, so to speak, to keep an eye to previous orchestrations uh, in time in order to connect them with the current orchestration. So this is a kind of a joint optimization, and there is uh, some other machine learning involved to uh, to improve that and, and e- eventually to improve that.
1: In case you'd like to hear what dynamic modeling with Orchidea sounds like, here's a demo from the software's website, where we hear an orchestration of a rooster crowing. The ability to analyze moving targets may be the most noticeable update to Orchidea, but it's not the only one. The addition of machine learning tools has also altered how sound is represented and processed by the program.
2: I would say that both Orchidea and Orchids were focusing on something that I would call instrumentation. So the idea that you actually Uh, rebuild a given sound by combining instrumental samples or samples of, uh, you know, instruments. Uh, Orchidea tries to do orchestration, so it it adds some sort of high-level principles. So Orchidea doesn't really use the samples, uses a sort of, uh, uh, you know, embedding, we say, like a, a feature, a set of features that describe this sound. So the problem is that when you generate new combinations to match a given target sound, while respecting the constraints, you need to generate the new features for the combinations. This can be very time-consuming. So, the solution in is to use uh, specific machine learning strategies, such as neural networks, for uh, somehow uh, making a prediction of the possible features without really computing them.
1: This intensive process Carmine is describing results in what he calls a forecast network, where combinations of instrumental features get tested for statistical similarities with the target sound.
2: Basically, um, we talk now about this component in Orchidea, this is the forecast network. I call it like forecast network. And uh, basically, uh, it's a network that has been trained to uh, do this simple task. Given a number of sounds, each one of them is described by specific features try to predict what would be the features of the sum of these sounds. So you train the system to predict the sum, basically. This would uh, speed up the process and, in fact, it would make it possible, otherwise it would be impossible because the number of combinations that Orchidea handles is very high. And so this is just an example on how machine learning uh, has an impact.
1: The features in these forecasts, as well as the methods for deriving them, come from decades of experiments aimed at mapping the perceptual correlates of what's known in psychoacoustics as a multidimensional timbre space. To better understand this connection, it may help to replay some of the history feeding into timbre forecasting networks. Going back to the early 70s, researchers like Rainier Plomp, John Gray, and David Wessel were adopting multi-dimensional scaling techniques in hearing tests of timbre perception. In their statistical approach, timbre was reduced to a core set of features, and these were used to produce 3D graphs plotting the perceived distance between different instruments illustrative of this approach is Gray's 1977 study of 20, quote, musically sophisticated subjects at Stanford University's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, or CARMA. In it, listeners were played a series of 270 pairs of tones, and then asked to rate the similarity of each relative to all other pairs heard. The tones were modeled on the analysis of 16 orchestral instruments, which were digitally synthesized to ensure equalization of pitch, loudness, and duration. A typical pair of stimuli would have been presented to the listener with a warning knock, followed by two different tones, like so. From there, you would have had about six seconds to make your similarity judgment on a scale of 1 to 30 before the next round. By cross-referencing ratings from all listeners, Gray mapped perceptual distances between instruments in a timbre spacecraft along three axes for spectral flux, attack transients, and the overall distribution of spectral energy. Crucially, these axes were not determined in advance but rather deduced by modeling the similarity judgments made by listeners. In theory, these graphs could be constructed along any number of axes. And if you changed the set of sounds or the group of listeners, you would change the relevant dimensions. The goal then is to find the optimal number of dimensions to define timbre within a set of sounds without devolving into the limit of statistical advantage or the so-called noise of data. In this way, multi-dimensional scaling techniques were thought to ground intuitive assessments of timbre perception in the numerical certainty of low-level acoustic features. Some among this early wave of researchers, like Plomp, have criticized MDS-based hearing tests, arguing they focus too narrowly on isolated synthetic tones in clean laboratory spaces that are cut off from the conditions of everyday listening. For that reason, timbre space graphs are only meant to describe the perceptions of a small group of listeners responding to a limited set of sounds. Despite this constraint, timbre space has been generalized, scaled, and aggregated to extend its potential relevance. Indeed, as Gray and others noted in a 1982 Karma report, The broader objective of these early timbre studies was to discover, quote, common underlying perceptual principles that can explain widely varying musical traditions that exist in different cultures. Fast forward to the late 1990s, and large-scale applications of the timbre space model were becoming a reality. This is when signal processing and music information retrieval tools were brought together in a European project dubbed Quidado. This project produced international standards for defining sound in the MPEG-7 format, also known as the Multimedia Content Description Interface. Unlike the earlier and more familiar MPEG-3 or MP3 format, the MPEG-7 is not for encoding actual audio. Instead, it's a standard for applying descriptive information to audio content. The format identifies dozens of descriptors grouped into several subcategories, including temporal, energy, spectral, harmonic, and perceptual. The goal of these descriptive categories, according to the research group, is to allow users to, quote, manipulate audio and music content through high-level specification That is designed to match the human cognitive structures involved in auditory perception to achieve this the quidado project brought together large media corporations like sony and yamaha with an international cohort of researchers including stephen mcadams Geoffrey peters and others from earcom it benefited in this connection from work already being done at earcom in particular, the development of a large database of instrumental samples called Studio Online that was in the process of being coupled with a music information retrieval system called ERCOM Descriptor.
2: I arrived right there. like I, I arrived at IRCOM around 2006-2007, and I developed the first version of IRCOM Descriptor uh, as a standalone uh, software.
1: And this is where Carminet comes back into the story.
2: Uh, at IRCOM, um part of the research was focused on the so-called low-level descriptors. Like, these are measures on sound that you can use to uh, eventually describe a sound uh, given different perspectives, like spectral perspective, uh, or harmonic perspective, or temporal perspective, for example.
1: As Carmine explains, these ERCOM projects paved the way for Orchidé and provided blueprints that would be replicated in later classification schemes.
2: All, all the sounds in, in Studio Online uh, have been analyzed using ERCOM descriptors, and then the descriptors have been installed, and this was kind of the database for Orchidé to perform the optimization process. Some of the descriptors that were in, uh, implemented in IRCOM descriptors, IRCOM descriptors became part of the MPEG-7 standard, So, but not all of them.
1: All right, so here the combination of Studio Online and ERCOM descriptor provided a vehicle for navigating timbre space, while also providing a precedent for defining audio in the MPEG-7 format. More recently, this model has informed the development of research-specific applications like MATLAB's timbre Toolbox, which has over 40 descriptors. But of these features, it's said that only 10 independent classes can be orally distinguished. Such variance and overlap hints at the problem of correlation between statistical models and auditory perception. And it also points to the potential for disagreements between disciplines when it comes to a basic definition of timbre.
2: Um, again, I don't think we, nobody agreed on a, a very uh, precise description of timbre. Timbre remains, in my, in my opinion, the biggest uh, open question we have in MIR. I think in my interpretation, uh, we have not a solid and fully wor- working ver- formal version of timbre we don't know actually what timbre is we don't even know how to say the two sounds are similar or they are the same timbre so there are a number of open questions and these are actually open also for me for kidea because, you know, just to give you a, a hint of, of what Orchidea does to generate the orchestrations, there is a sort of, uh, of, uh, of uh, match between a target timbre and a timbre that is a combination of instruments. And this match is done computing a distance in a specific feature space. But this distance uh, is kind of a very difficult thing because we don't know what does it mean to be close, perceptually speaking. So it could be that maybe you design a distance that says that these two sounds are similar, but in fact, you play them and they are not.
1: This gap between abstract models and perception figures into debates between researchers in cognitive psychology and those making MIR-based tools for music recommendation systems. These two camps tend to disagree on which parts of the audio signal should be used as physical correlates of timbre perception, as well as to what extent these can be related to higher-level constructs like genre, mood, and instrumentation. This means that MIR researchers may analyze hundreds of audio features to infer descriptions of the music based on statistical correlations. Psychologists, on the other hand, may consider only a handful of features relevant because the field is concerned with the perceptual and physiological accuracy of the models, not just their predictive value. What I find most interesting about these interdisciplinary rifts is how they highlight the ongoing status of negotiations around timbre. It is still a contested idea, and yet timbrel taxonomies have been frozen into formats that affect all kinds of applications, not just assisted orchestration software. So why should one particular set of audio features, instead of another, become constitutive of timbre? And what happens to cases that don't fit?
2: One one important problem for me is what is called algorithmic bias. Uh, it's a problem that is intrinsically uh, related to data science, in which you uh, the way you collect the data would actually decide the answer. In other words, so the, uh, the there is a sort of bias in making the data set that you then use to uh, train a system, and and this bias is clear in, in a number of applications. For example, face recognition. Uh, there are, you know, uh, some communities that have um, developed more more, more photos, for example, and these photos um, are actually biasing the, the recognition. So there are some type of uh, faces that are not recognized because of this bias. So this is uh, definitely uh, an important problem uh, in general for society, I believe. And so we need to pay attention to this. Um, but it, specifically for timber, I would say that uh, the model that we, we have in Orchidea is the uh, Definitely uh, um, connected to a specific set of, uh, uh, I would say, uh, cultural biases uh, that uh, created this, this kind of interpretation. Like I was mentioning just before that uh, Orchidea is somehow a son of uh, or, a, or a daughter, as, as you like, of uh, uh, spectral music. So this type of you know, uh, cultural uh, attitude is, is clear in, in Orchidea. But there is a nice, a nice thing in Orchidea, since we have data, you can actually change the behavior of the system by changing the data set. As a step toward
1: diversifying the dataset, Orchidea could be linked with a database of non-Western instruments to produce non-orchestral solutions of a target sound. But there's still the question of which timbral metrics will be used to classify these diverse sounds and navigate
2: the database. It is true that in Orchidea, the metric is not variable. So the, the, the metric is a, a kind of a very well-defined uh, function that I somehow uh, designed uh, for, uh, for orchestration. So the, 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 the only aim uh, that uh, this metric is actually trying to, you know, uh, to achieve is, is uh, orchestration.
1: In the case of Orchidea, these Tambral metrics seem to fit the organological content of the database but using the same metrics in other applications, such as an automatic speaker identification system that maps voices to social identities and affective states, would pose ethical concerns no matter how diverse the sample size. In the remainder of this episode, I want to expand the scope of discussion beyond purely aesthetic applications and turn towards the broader cultural politics around what it means to listen in the context of machine listening. For more on this, I'm joined now by Jonathan Stern and Mayhek Sawney, who recently co-authored an article on the subject.
0: I mean, a lot of the work of machine listening is converting sound into data such that the tools of machine learning can be applied to it. Um, And as with many other sort of engineering fields, there's a fairly limited set of Um, techniques, modes of reasoning, and approaches to getting from data to an analysis of a situation to an application.
3: And just so that the listeners know that what actually goes into machine listening, it might be helpful to break it into four main stages, specifically in the case case of speech recognition and voice identification. And these are data collection, signal processing, data analysis, and the final application of these technologies. I feel those fields where these technologies circulate are equally important. And there's this question which you asked, uh, that what does it mean for machines to hear? So keeping in mind all these stages and all these processes, I'd say that there isn't one answer. Keeping in mind that uh, so much goes into the process of machine listening, it could mean data extraction, it could mean the essentialization of human voice, it could mean uh, the mathematization or statistization of human voice, uh, the incrimination of a person based on uh, their linguistic or racial background, it could also mean an accessible technology, and it could together also mean an ensemble of all of this. Uh, so I feel that machine listening really needs to be uh, split apart and seen through these processes to be able to understand what it does.
1: We've seen how the four stages of machine listening that mehek outlines here, data collection, signal processing, data analysis, and app development, unfolded over a period of decades in the case of assisted orchestration software. Along similar lines, the development of automatic speaker recognition can be traced back to 20th century attempts to analyze so-called voice prints into low-level spectrographic features that could be admitted as evidence in court to prove a suspect's criminality. The science behind these early voice ID technologies was ultimately contested in 1976 by a special committee from the Acoustical Society of America. They concluded that a person's vocal timbre is impacted as much by behavioral, emotional, and performative factors as by physical anatomy. But the idea that a speaker's voice, identity, and affective state can be quantified and statistically linked persists in many machine listening applications today. So briefly,
0: in addition to the quantification of voice, you have to have quantification of anything that voice is going to be mapped against. So this person is hiding something. This person is lying. This person is frightened. This person is angry. All of, those th- all of those affective states have to be represented as a quantity, which means only certain theories of affect work for machine listening or machine learning in general. And so, like, even if you're talking about sentiment analysis on social media or other places where um, artificial intelligence is getting affecty, only those theories of affect that can be operationalized can be used so only certain theories of the subject are even admissible second thing to point out is like well what's happening here is at each stage when we're talking about judgments being made in machine learning you always have to remember that's a probability right so it's like it's 75 percent chance that it's jonathan stern speaking or a 95% chance that it's Jonathan Stern speaking. Um, the problem with that is in, you know, what percentage of error is appropriate for the setting that you're in. Right? In a forensic setting in a criminal justice setting, I would say very close to zero is appropriate. Um so I think it's important uh to keep in mind that these numbers actually have very real, like these probability numbers, when they're taken as not probabilities but judgments, have real-world impacts for people that we should be concerned about.
1: A common suggestion for improving the margin of error in these statistical systems, and by extension for reducing discrimination and expanding access to technology, is to diversify the underlying data sets. But Jonathan and Mayhek are cautious about this approach since even well-meaning efforts to create more diverse data sets can play into what they call the, quote, will to datafy.
3: Is the solution then we increase the scale of the data set? Is the solution then that we diversify the data set? Uh, so the idea here is that whatever we might do, keeping in mind the corporate and institutional logics within which these technologies operate, uh, the immediate solutions which come to mind uh, are still extractive. Uh, And I think that's the pressure point we really need to think about in this case. But there's uh, an alternative point. This is not to say that AI is essentially good or bad. I mean, that's not what we're trying to say. And I say this because there's a lot of discourse emerging from Black communities and Indigenous communities uh, on the ways in which they can develop certain AI technologies. But the main point there is about data possession and data ownership. Uh, To give you an example, uh, there's uh, this community called the Maori community, which is an indigenous community in New Zealand. Uh, and they've actually built their own speech recognition system, and also many other data-driven language technologies to preserve the natural sounds of their language, because there's, there was a lot of English inflection uh, in, their, in their language since the 1940s. But their point was, or their terms of condition are, that they are not going to sell this data to any American corporation. So it's... So I think there's this entire discourse emerging around data ownership, uh, and the idea of abolition is, is on, on the one on the one hand, it's about refusing, refusing to give uh, any data. but on the other hand, it's also to uh, it's also the idea that data should not be owned by these few corporations. It should be owned by the communities who need them the most.
1: From this perspective, the politics of machine listening are determined not so much by the technology itself as by its surrounding cultures of use. Counterexamples of technology used as a mode of resistance, as in the case of the Maori, do exist, but governments and multinational corporations have an advantage when it comes to running big data operations, as they alone have the resources to extract and maintain sufficiently large sums of information. This disparity points to a global macro-politics of machine listening, to which we might add a micro-political dimension that resides at the level of signal analysis.
0: Some other places I think we should look for politics, really, is around the politics of the metrics being used, where they come from, and the epistemologies tied to them. Um, One of my favorite sort of, and I think she said this is a throwaway line, but Meredith Whitaker has this line that most AI is built on old algorithms. And what she means is that the modes of actual statistical reasoning and statistical inference are not new. Like the innovations in AI have to do almost entirely with the processing level and with the sheer amount of data that's been gathered. There aren't major new discoveries in statistical reasoning and because of the way engineering education works, it is built around what I would call sanctioned ignorance of culture. Which means that the vast majority of people doing voice analysis don't have an understanding of voice as a human or a political thing. So if you say, um, we're going to just be able to detect these things from voices without knowing anything about voices, that's built off a kind of sanctioned ignorance and it's about foreclosing. Certain kinds of questions that can't be quantified very well, right? And so, like, if you look at histories of psychology, if you look at histories of psychometrics, if you look at histories of criminology, if you look at histories of design, right, it's all about um, creating what Amy Hamray calls the norme template, like what is a normal human? Uh, that can be produced as a statistical regularity. Now, what does this have to do with voices has a lot to do with voices. If we're saying, okay, the average human expresses affect in this way, expresses distrust, distress, or anger with this kind of tone of voice, even within a linguistic community, um, you are, um, painting with such a broad brush that you are inevitably going to leave out a lot of people and a lot of nuance that's actually really important for human interaction. They're trying to determine something about a, like not a statistical individual, but like an individual person from, some, from a statistical regularity in a group, right? When the regularity in a group is not a probability in an individual.
1: In wrapping up our conversation, I asked Jonathan and Mahag whether the probabilistic framework of machine listening could ever be reconciled with the diverse experiences of human listeners.
3: The model of the subject that gets inscribed within these systems is a very specific model of the subject. And I think the more critical model of subjectivity or the phenomenological experience uh, of the subject uh, is it has... It can be understood uh, through the lens of plurality, right? And I think that model isn't really applicable here because this model is a very limited in terms of the in terms of the subjectivity that it it encodes, and then that subjectivity is for the quantified, classified, normalized, uh, uh, and I can't even say what it gets converted into. It's it's ultimately a neural network, right? It's a black box. We don't even know what's happening within the machine
0: not all phenomenologists, not all humanist listeners are like this, but many admit that there are many possible epistemologies of listening. If the world of machine learning operated the same way, then you'd say, yeah, the psychoacoustic model or the informatic model is really useful for certain things and gets us certain answers and like, that's fine. That's one part of reality. And there are people in that world who act that way. The problem is the institutions don't. And so you actually get an inversion where um, the informatic model of listening is a fraction of reality. It is a fraction of what it means to be a human listener that is treated as a totality that subsumes all the others when it is in fact itself subsumed within a, a much larger assemblage.
1: Timbres should provide an ideal impetus for embracing more diverse epistemologies of listening. After all, it often gets cast as an emergent sonic property that resists the discrete, quantifiable structures of notated scores. Understudied and ill-defined, it gets characterized as the, quote, auditory wastebasket of music, containing all those unknown variables that are not pitch or loudness. But as we've heard, in the context of new media, timbre gets reduced to knowable, nameable parameters all the time, whether in the context of assisted orchestration software automatic speaker identification systems, or other machine listening applications. By definition, timbre formats elide diverse practices, experiences, and modes of perception within the fuzzy bounds of a contested nomenclature. As a result, it becomes easy to forget that what functions like a general theory of timbre in formats like MPEG-7 is, in fact, a theory of orchestral timbre supported by a history of instrumental playing and listening techniques That emerged from the common substrate of Western classical music. In the process of restoring this history, we might consider whether the idea of timbre needs to be cut loose from the metrics of timbre space models and detached from its linguistic base, if only momentarily, to reassess the contingencies involved at every step. What is timbre? Who gets to say and why? By revisiting these questions, we can draw attention to the historical and cultural specificity of present timbre formats while creating space for the development of new sound technologies built around a greater plurality of listening practices. That's all for this episode of SMT Pod. Thanks for listening, and please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I want to thank my guests, Carmena Emanuela Cella, Jonathan Stern, and Mayhek Sawney, for taking the time to talk about their work and for their many thoughtful responses to my questions. Additionally, I'd like to send a special thanks to Jennifer Iverson for providing helpful feedback as a reviewer of this episode to IRCOM and the Paul Zucker Foundation for Archival Documents, and finally to everyone on the SMT Pod production team for helping to make this series possible. Visit our website smt-pod.org for supplemental materials related to this episode. And join in on the conversation by tweeting your questions and comments at SMT_Pod. SMT pod's theme music was written by Zheng Chen Liu with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening.